The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. Good morning. If you have your Bible with you, if you would go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 10, that's where we are picking up with where we left off. We've been watching uh, Paul's journey here, explaining salvation to us and explaining what's going on with this church in Rome, a place that he hasn't visited, and the schism that's taking place there between many of the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers, and they're trying to figure out exactly how do we do life together. So he's addressing some of those issues, but he's also addressing larger issues and understanding how do we see our faith? How did our faith come about? How do we know that we're saved? And what is God doing in the broader scheme of things? And so that's what we've been seeing. We talked about in in chapters uh, 9, 10, and 11. Paul is kind of taking a little bit of a detour here, and he's explaining to us exactly how we got into the situation there in the first century, where it seems so many Gentiles are accepting this message of Jesus, and so many Jews are rejecting it. And it seems like for a lot of the Jewish believers who have accepted it, even though they are few and far between, um, it seems for them that God has failed in some regards or that he's thrown his people aside. And so Paul is addressing those issues one by one. And so we are in chapter 10 and we're going to work our way through the end of it. And we're looking at a passage that probably we're very familiar with because uh, if you've ever heard any kind of sermon on missions, you've probably heard this passage taught. So with that said, let's jump into it and read the text for today. Romans chapter 10, verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? Well, first Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So you see what Paul's doing here. He's beginning to ask the, answer the questions that are obviously being asked in the minds of his readers there in the first century. So these are the passages that we are familiar with whenever we hear missions sermons, especially if we've ever heard a sermon or teaching on the importance of missions or the call to missions. And it makes sense when we hear Paul's strong appeal for the sending out of God's people so that the others, the lost, those who've never heard will have a chance to hear that great opportunity of the gospel message that could change their life. So what I want to do is see where Paul's been going with this and kind of set up the narrative that we're studying today. If you go back to verse two, look at what Paul says. For I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Do you remember when we studied that a couple of weeks ago, we focused in on that word knowledge there. So the Jewish people had this zeal 
They were doing a lot of good things, but they weren't doing it for the right reasons. They were trying to earn their salvation still by keeping the law. They were looking to the law for their righteousness. And, and Paul even says that they were creating their own path to righteousness in a sense. They were rejecting the one that God had provided and they were choosing to create their own righteousness. They were very zealous for the law. They were very zealous for the things of God, but in the process, they actually missed what the law was pointing them to. And Paul tells us that Christ is the end of the law, the telos of the law. In other words, he's the fruition of it, not the end of it like we throw it away because Christ is here. But what he's saying is that the law has always been pointing us to Christ. And I, I gave the illustration that it's almost like we've been sitting in a car looking at a map trying to figure out where we're going. And Paul sticks his head in the window, grabs the map and turns it around and goes, there, now you can figure it out. And he, basically what he's been saying is you've been seeing the law all wrong. You've been thinking the law was directing you to heaven. It's not, it's directing you to Christ. And so that's what you've got to find. That's the answer. You can't be good enough. Your righteousness will never be enough. His righteousness, find yourself in him. And that's what Paul was talking about. But then that brings us to another question. How could Israel be held accountable for not knowing what God was doing through Jesus, the Messiah? How do we know that they had been given the opportunity to learn about God's purposes through Jesus Christ? Had they been given an opportunity to respond to those truths? That's the question that we have to ask. Did they know? Did they have an ample opportunity? And Paul is answering those questions in today's passage. And his answer is an emphatic yes. And he does like he always does. And he goes back to scripture and says, look at how this lines up. Look at what we find. Now, it's very interesting as we take all of chapter 10 to notice that every division of the Old Testament, Paul goes and pulls passages from. He pulls it from the wisdom literature, from the Torah. He pulls it from the prophets. All over the place, he's pulling these different references to say, look, this is what God has been doing all along. And he's showing us that Israel had heard and understood about God's plan, about God's purposes. And for this very reason, the Jews are accountable for their rejection of Christ. They knew, but they did not believe is what Paul is saying to us. And many scholars have struggled with understanding Paul's comments in this passage, specifically whether it should be seen as connected to what he's just said or whether it's a good transition into what he says there in chapter 11, especially the beginning parts of chapter 11. And obviously with it being there, it's a flow of thought. So it's connected to both. But I think that as we look at this, when we see the importance of passionate preaching that Paul has talked about, and we see how he's just talked about how the Jews have rejected this message that's come to them, I think that it's obvious this is an overflow for from what he's already been saying. And so Paul has spent a great deal of time making it clear that the way of legalism, the way of being good enough, the way of pursuing righteousness by your good works and trying to earn God's favor by being good enough is not the way to salvation. When we look at the Gentiles, as Paul directs us to, we see that they're coming to Christ through faith and through abundant grace. And Paul's making this, this, this claim here. He's saying, look at this. The Gentiles are coming in. They're finding salvation. And they're finding it through faith. They're not finding it through the law. They're not finding it through being good enough. They're not finding it through sacrifices. They're finding it through the great grace of God. So have the Jews been treated fairly? 
has everything been made clear to them? Well, see, it's Paul's point to answer these questions about the fairness of God. Has God been fair in this regard? And he goes straight to God's word to say, yes, God has been fair across the board. And this is very important for us to understand because this is very important to Paul's continuing logic throughout all of these chapters that we've been looking at here. He wants everyone to see that the way of grace to salvation has been God's plan all along. And that is most evident and most clear when we actually go back to the scripture and let the scriptures speak for themselves. So again, look at verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. So there in verse 14, Paul asks three questions and they seem pretty obvious, right? How will they call on one they have not believed in? How can they believe if they've never heard? And how can they hear if no one ever preaches to them? Now, the first thing I want you to see is this. Whenever the word of God is declared, it is Christ speaking to the people, not a preacher. That's one thing that he makes very clear right here. When we look at it, he says very clearly, Christ is present in the preaching. To hear them declare God's word is to hear him declaring the truth about himself. Luke 10, 16, Jesus is talking about many of the different cities that he had been visiting and many of them had rejected him. And so he's speaking these woes to these cities. Now, the thing about it is when you go back and study these cities, these are the cities that should have got it. These were the conservative cities. These were the cities that they had a very good, healthy perspective on what it means to honor God and to live for God. And yet all of them rejected Jesus when he came and ministered among them. And so what we see is this rejection and this woe, man, if you would have just seen this, listen to what he says in Luke 10, 16. The one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So his disciples had gone out at this point. He had sent them to all these different cities. And they came back and these were the cities that were rejecting the message of the coming of the kingdom of God through Jesus. And he's speaking these woes to them. And basically in there, he's talking about the same thing that we see in this passage. And that is when the word of Christ is spoken, it doesn't matter who's speaking it. It is Christ himself speaking it because the words are alive and true. And so as we move through this text, it's important to keep in context, first century life, okay? When we understand the way they lived day to day in the first century, some of this makes a whole lot more sense. For example, hearing, that is a reflection of first century life. When he talks about those who hear the word of God, right? Why? Because he doesn't ever make mention of reading because reading material was very scarce. The ability to read for most people was something that was unheard of. So to hear was the way things were communicated in first century for the majority of the people. And so how are you going to hear something unless there's someone there to proclaim it, to preach it? And that's why he has this focus here. And so in verse 15, Paul gets to the point of all of these different questions. 
He says in verse 15, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? Now, I think Paul would have us pause here for a moment. I think if he was reading his letter out loud, he would pause and he would have us reflect on these things. There is a strong confidence that Paul has in these words that he's sharing with us here. Paul is convinced that those who preach the true gospel do so because they've been sent by God. It is God's grace that the message comes to us. It's not my passion that I'm here today. It's not because of what I have to say. It's not because of what I have to offer you. It is someone who is sent by God to declare a message for the people. And so it is truly a divine proclamation is the way Paul sees that. And we need to sit and think about that for a moment. We need to think about the fact when we come to a place like this, we're not coming to hear a man. We're not coming to hear a man entertain us. We're not coming to hear a man with eloquent words. We're coming to hear the word of God, the true word of God. We're coming to hear God speak to us in our hearts. The thing is, you can put anybody up here and they can just read words. It's the power of the Holy Spirit to make those words effective in our hearts and in our lives. And so anyone can come up here and listen to anybody. If they're preaching the word of God, the hearts can be changed because that's how powerful it is. That's how powerful he is. That's the work of the spirit amongst his people. That is him drawing us to himself. And look at verse 15, how Paul finishes this thought. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now here Paul's quoting from the prophet Isaiah. Now we always need to go back whenever he pulls a quote out. And, and, and he's in the New Testament, right? We're writing in this New Testament after the cross, after the resurrection, after the beginning of the church. And he goes back and quotes from the Old Testament. He's doing that for a purpose. He wants to prove something. He wants to show us something. So if we go back to Isaiah 52, where he obviously is pulling this from, look at what it says in the fuller text there. Verse seven, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye, they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of, what does it say? All the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And so Paul goes and quotes this first part. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of, number one, what does that say? Him who brings good news. Now, even... The rabbis would tell us this is a messianic passage. This is pointing to the Messiah, him who would come and he would deliver the good news of God's salvation. But I think it's interesting that as Paul quotes it, he makes it plural. How beautiful are the feet of them that bring good news. Again, I think he's going back to that idea of wherever this is proclaimed, we will go all over the place, but yet we are representing Christ when we make this proclamation. And that's how it will go to the ends of the earth. This is a movement that God has started. Have you ever noticed that people who bring good news are always welcome? Have you ever noticed that? 
Man, we always welcome people who bring us some good news. I was in Pep Boys not too long ago. And there was an older lady there in the service center. And she was sitting there waiting patiently on her car. And the guy came out and he said, Mrs. Smith, uh, we got your car fixed. And the air conditioning is working perfectly. And she said, I could kiss your face right now. <laughs> and what was funny is as I thought about that, that was the guy who was behind the register. And he'd obviously been there the whole day. He did not work on her car. He didn't do a thing to it. He was just relaying the news. And yet she said, I could kiss your face. Why? Because we always welcome people who bring good news. Isn't that true? In the first century context, he's talking about the watchmen who are on this wall who see the soldiers returning. They're returning with battle scars. They're returning with wounded feet soiled from the dust of the roads, but they're returning in victory. And they bring back the message, we have won. We have been victorious in battle. Doesn't matter what their feet look like. He's not talking about tan feet. He's not talking about feet that have the toenails clipped. He's talking about feet that may be broken and battered, but yet they bring a message of victory. That is always welcome, is it not? What about the beautiful feet of Jesus? Scarred wounded, pierced, and yet it brings the good news that our debt has been paid. How beautiful are the feet of them that bring that good news. Now, verses 14 and 15 are Paul's setup for really verses 16 all the way through 21. And he goes here from the general to the very specific. Watch how he develops this. Now, Let's take a side note for just a second. Before we look at that specifically, I want you to see exactly what he's doing here if you haven't already noticed it. Go back to verse 13 for just a second. Now remember, that's the last verse that we looked at last week. And this was the transition, if you will, into the verses that we're looking at this week. But I want you to watch how he ends that section and then how he comes into this because it's very important that we see what he's doing here. Verse 13 says this, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is a powerful uh, promise right there, right? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. So you are making this declaration. You are calling on the name of the Lord. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, if you remember from our study last week, we noted that Paul is actually quoting from Joel chapter two, verse 32. So he's talking about an Old Testament passage, not a New Testament. When we think about this in the Roman road, right? We think of this as something that's being declared in the New Testament. But Paul's showing us, no, this was actually declared in the Old Testament. In other words, again, this has been God's plan all along. And so we see where he's coming from. The point was that this is what God has been doing bringing these Gentiles into the covenant family. And that's what he intended to do from the very beginning. And Paul also makes the point that salvation happens when we call on the name of the Lord. Now, from this statement, what you're gonna see as you read this section that we've read is that Paul begins to work backwards from that statement. So he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But before you can call on the name of the Lord, what do you have to do? you first have to believe in him. Before you can believe in him, you have to hear the gospel message. Before you can hear the gospel message, somebody has to preach it. Before someone can preach it, someone has to be sent to you to proclaim it. So do you see how he's starting with where he ended there? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And now he's walking us backwards. Here's why. This is not mainly a, a missiological passage. 
In other words, when we look at this, we can make some great mission sermons from it, but that's not Paul's main point. Paul's main point is to see where the Jews missed it in this whole process. He's going and showing us, did, was someone faithful to proclaim it? Yes, someone was faithful to proclaim it. What was the same promise made to them that was made to everyone else? Yes. So where did it fail? It failed that when they heard it, they didn't believe it. That's what he's trying to help us see. This is the process of salvation. And yet here's where the Jews of that first century missed it. That's what you're going to see as he develops here. Now, John Stott says that the essence of Paul's argument is seen if we put the six verbs in opposite order. Christ sends heralds, heralds preach, people hear, the hearers believe, believers call, and those who call are saved. Do you see that? Again, it's very important for us here to understand the point that Paul's aim of this passage, not to encourage more missionary journeys, although you can definitely see that that's in view here, but that's not his main point. His main point is that God in his divine sovereignty has sent people to proclaim the message of salvation. Now look at verse 16 for a moment. But they who have not all obeyed the gospel... For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So Isaiah is talking about a proclamation that he has made. And he's asking this question in frustration. Who is even believing this? We're spending our time making these proclamations. We are sharing the word that you have given us to share. And people are not receiving this word. See, contrary to what we might have expected, not all the Israelites accepted the good news. You see, the gospel demands obedience. And when we refuse to respond to that gospel message, we are in disobedience to God. Look at what he, how he continues it in verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This verse is like a summary or a transition thought for Paul. He is emphasizing again this idea of hearing. So again, as we've watched this unfold, there is a declaration that takes place that brings about the fruition of salvation in our life, but that can't happen until we believe and we can't believe until we have heard. So there's this idea of hearing that he keeps focusing in on. Notice that he says, hearing through the word of Christ. Now this isn't something smart men have made up, Paul wants us to know. He, he's saying there that the gospel message does not originate with men. It originates with God, but it is delivered to us by listening to those who God has sent to us. So you could say Moses was one who brought the word of the Lord. You could say the prophets are the ones who brought the word of the Lord. The disciples were sent out by Jesus to declare the word of the Lord. Jesus himself was there to declare the kingdom of God is at hand. And even today, preachers are called from congregations all over the world to continue this message of proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. But listen, it has nothing to do with them. It has nothing to do with how good they are or that somehow their meritorious acts make them better than anyone else or a better person to send out there. No, it's just the work of God. It's the grace of God. It's the message of God. This is never about an individual. This is always about the great God who is sovereign over all things. In verse 18, but I ask, have they not heard? Paul says, indeed they have. They have heard. For, and he goes back and quotes from the Old Testament again, 
their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Now, what Paul's doing here is he's beginning his conclusion to these questions that have been presented. The problem is not with God or God's fairness. He's beginning to pinpoint where the problem is. And the problem is actually with Israel. Again, watch how he crafts this argument. Verse 16, not all the Israelites accepted the good news. Verse 17, that good news had to be heard to be accepted by faith. Israel has largely failed to respond in this way. Verse 18, because Israel has heard, she should have believed, like he says in verse 18, and then she should have understood is what he's going to say in verse 19. But right here in verse 18, Paul is actually quoting from a psalm. He's quoting from Psalm 19.4. And what he's doing is strengthening that last point that he has made. Now look at what it says in Psalm 19.4 directly from that text. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Now this psalm in its entirety points us to the very general natural revelation of God to the entire world. If we specifically look at one section of it, we don't have time to read the whole thing, but if we look at just how it starts off, listen to verse one. The heavens declare the glories of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out what? Speech. And night to night reveals what? Knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not what? So by using this passage to build his case, what Paul's doing is entirely ruling out the chance that Israel somehow did not have the opportunity to hear. So Paul is using the language from the Old Testament to express this truth that God has revealed the gospel to his kinsmen. They have heard in this process. But Paul goes on to show that God has done even more than that. Look at verse 19. But I ask, did Israel not understand? Now watch what he's going to do. He's going to go all the way back to Moses in the law. He's already quoted from the wisdom literature in Psalm. And he's going to go all the way back up to Isaiah and the prophets. Again, all across the divisions of the Old Testament, Paul is pulling these passages to show us again, this is what God planned from the very beginning. Okay. So he starts off right there. First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. So Israel has been in rebellion against God. God has been trying to pour out so much good on them and they won't receive this goodness. They keep going to their own way. They keep rejecting and moving away from God's goodness to their own goodness, their search for their own pleasure. So having already established that the Old Testament demonstrates that God's truth has gone out so that Israel has had that opportunity to hear, he now is showing us that as far back as Moses, God has said that he planned to be a nation 
or plan to be a blessing to nations outside of Israel, to a people group outside of Israel. So he quotes this passage from Deuteronomy, and specifically it's from chapter 32, verse 21, that foretells this day that God was actually going to use people outside of Israel, Gentiles in other words, and it was going to bring about jealousy and anger within Israel. Now notice that the reference is to a foolish nation. Now that's important because we can see that as derogatory, but I think Paul's trying to make a point by bringing that out. Here's the point that I think he's trying to make. They are foolish in the sense that they had no idea where to look for God. They didn't have a law. They didn't have the 10 commandments. They didn't have the Torah. They didn't have the writings of the prophets. They didn't have the wisdom literature. They didn't have all the poetry. They didn't have any of these things. As far as that direction was concerned, they were foolish because they didn't have those things. And yet, somehow, they still are finding Christ. Paul is saying that if the Gentiles, if the Gentiles were able to find this truth in that condition, how much more should you have seen it, Israel? How much more are you without excuse when God gave you the law that pointed you to Christ? One commentator says it this way. The answer implied in verse 19 is that if unenlightened people outside of the covenant could understand the gospel, then certainly a religiously gifted and highly favored group like the Jews had no grounds for claiming that it was beyond their understanding. This point is very important to how Paul is structuring this whole conversation this whole idea of the gospel and how it brings salvation to us. So after showing where this is present in the law of Moses, he goes on and shows us how the prophets confirm the same thing. What may seem to be very broad and vague in what we just read from the law starts to get very specific when we look at the prophets. Look at what he says in verse 20. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. So here Paul uses this line from the prophet Isaiah in which the prophet says that there would be people outside of Israel who were not even seeking him and somehow they still found him. The main point is centered around, again, the sovereignty of God. See, it's not that these Gentiles were more interested in finding God than the Jews were. Matter of fact, it says they weren't. But yet somehow they still found him. Why? Why? Because God is sovereign and he reveals himself to people of faith. Now, it's not the cut and dry answer that we all want that explains everything and connects all the, the dots together for us so that we see the picture but it is the answer that Paul goes back to. Verse 21, but of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So now again, he goes back to Isaiah. That's where this quote comes from as well. So he already has shown in Isaiah that God was planning to extend grace to those who are outside the people of Israel. And then he comes back and says, Quotes this from Isaiah, all day long, God says to I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So Paul uses this quote, this is from chapter 65 in Isaiah, to emphasize 
what's happening in their day and time was actually clearly prophesied in the Old Testament. Not only would there be this inclusion of the Gentiles, these nations outside of Israel, but there would also be very many Israelites who would be set apart, set aside because of their unbelief. Now, I love how this quote that Paul concludes with has both a tone of warning and a tone of grace. Did you notice that? God's call, his hand is outstretched. He's saying, you're an obstinate people. You're so stubborn, but yet all day long, I leave my hand out. It's warning us against our obstinance. It's warning us against being stubborn, against wanting to forge our own way, to create our own salvation, to find our own peace in this world. And yet a God who we keep rejecting, his hand is outstretched. Always with that invitation of grace, if we would humble ourselves and we would repent and we would believe and that we would declare the great truth of God. See, it's interesting that as strong as Paul was on predestination in chapter nine, and he was strong there, right? And even in some other places that we've seen, clearly here he's emphasizing human responsibility right along with it. Just as strongly as he was emphasizing that predestination and that sovereignty of God, here he's emphasizing human responsibility, specifically that of Israel. And this is an important point for us because if we're going to fully embrace Paul's point here in these chapters, we have to hold both of those truths, God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And we have to hold them at the same time, no matter how difficult it may be for us to square them together. You see, I love what the old preacher said. He said, we always think of the sovereignty of God and human free will as being opposed to each other. He says, but in actuality, they never had a falling out. You see, keep in mind, this is not the end of the story. It seems like it's a very dark time for Israel that Paul is painting, but that's because he's setting us up for chapter 11. We're going into chapter 11. He's going to be, begin to explain all of these things. Paul is setting us up for where he's going here. But before we move on, I think it would be very wise for us to just sit and ponder for a moment the amazing gospel of God that has been declared by Paul as he has so eloquently shown us that this has been God's plan all along. And do you see, sometimes it's very easy for us as American Christians to come to a place like this and hear it and go, oh, that's, that's good. But do you realize that if this truth that Paul's proclaiming was not true, none of us in here would be here today. I mean, there may be a few Jewish people here. I don't know. But I would say the majority of this room, you're Gentiles. You were on the outside. And Paul is saying, in his great grace, from the very beginning, even though he chose Israel, he chose them to be a blessing and his, always his desire to, we're not plan B. God intended from the very beginning to extend his great salvation to you. Isn't that amazing? I mean, just soak that in for a moment. The story of your life. Those of you who are following after Christ, your conversion experience, how you were drawn. What was that 
that was happening? Was it a friend who was preaching and proclaiming this good news to you? Was it at a revival? Was it at a church? Where was it when you heard that good news and something resonated in your heart and you professed with your mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord, because you believe, because the Holy Spirit stirred you, because God sent someone to you. Isn't it amazing that as this gospel comes onto the scene of humanity, it humbled the proud and it lifted the lowly. Many of the Israelites have become very proud and they're arrogance that they had the law and we contain the law and we're the chosen people of God. And Paul is saying, man, you've totally missed it. That's not why he chose you. That, that, he didn't pick you because you're better than everyone else. He picked you to be a blessing to them. And so this gospel of Christ, when it comes onto the scene, it pushes down the proud and it lifts up the holy. And you know what? It still does the same thing today. When the word of God is proclaimed, it pushes down the proud and it lifts up the lowly. The gospel is what we have to preach and it's what we have to teach above everything else. We do need to know how to have good marriages. We need to know how to be good parents. We need to know how to be good workers and good stewards of our money. But if we've missed the gospel, none of that matters because the gospel's at the heart of every one of those. You don't wanna have a good marriage, have the gospel at the center of your marriage. You wanna be a good parent, let that gospel stare you in the face every day as you get on your knees and you pray, God, help me to be a good steward of these blessings that you've entrusted to me. God, as you pulled my wayward heart, pull the heart of these wayward children to you. We are desperate for you. Oh God, the gospel of God still lifts up the lowly and it still pushes down the proud. As a church, we have to be very careful not to make the same mistake that Israel did. Paul makes it very clear that Israel existed. Israel was chosen to be a blessing to the other nations. God's intention fully was to work through her for the benefit of all those around her. But what happened was she only focused on herself. Instead of being outward focused is what she was called for, she only became inward focused. And when she became inward focused, she became very haughty. And she said, look what I am. Look how, look how good I am. Look how righteous I am. I must be worthy because God has chosen me. And very carefully, we can slip into that same mindset. We often make that same mistake. Here's a truth that you can take to the bank. You will never go on mission if you don't hear the gospel yourself. There's no way that you're gonna set aside your daily routine and your pursuit of money and pleasure in this world until the gospel has wrecked your life first. And when the gospel comes in and wrecks your life, and that's in a good way, when it wrecks your life, it changes your priorities. And then you sit there and go, an opportunity to go share the gospel? Absolutely. What do I need to do? Where do I need to sign up? I remember the first time I ever went on a mission trip and it was to Romania. I don't know what my mom and dad were thinking because uh, I was 19 years old. I'd just graduated high school. I hadn't even had my first year of college yet. And they let me go to a country that had just had a coup, um, literally within the year. 
It was when Ceausescu was overthrown in Romania, and that was when the Soviet wall really began to fall. And when we get to Romania, they have no government. And we were on alert from the U.S. Embassy the whole time we were there, which was about a month. I think it was about three weeks we were there. And, you know, reflecting back on it, I was like, wow, that was really dangerous. But as a 19-year-old, hey, look at those bullet holes around that window up there. That's cool, isn't it? I wonder if they got that guy. You know, I mean, those are the kind of things you think as a 19-year-old, not even thinking. But it was some of the richest times in my life. You know why? Because as we would go to these places, just because we were Americans, we could go into a city in Romania. Now, this won't happen today, but right after that fall of the wall, when you walked in there, you could say, we are Americans and we are here to speak to you. And I promise you, 500 people would gather in the town square and they would listen to a 19-year-old who probably didn't really know what he was talking about for as long as I would sit there and talk. I'm talking about hour after hour after hour, they would not leave. We saw so many people come to faith in Jesus Christ on that trip simply because the time was so right. And there were some rich experiences that solidified my faith that let me really grow in my understanding of God and my love for the gospel that had changed my life. There are also some funny stories that went with it. I remember we were actually getting on a train to Sofia, Bulgaria, because we went down to Bulgaria as well, and we're preaching down there. We were actually doing, I was with a team called Athletes in Action, and so we were going and teaching baseball in all these different cities, and uh, we were on a train heading down there, and again, remember, this is like all these crazy things are going on, and we get on this train, and we get to the border of Romania and, and Bulgaria. And all we see is going in front, because we were in those cars, a 10-hour ride, and we went at night, so it had these little bunk beds you could sleep on. So we hopped up in the middle of the night because the train stopped, and we hear this guy going, pass, passports, passports. And we see walking by, and these guys have these guns, I mean, big guns. And so all we can hear is they open all the doors, get your passports ready. And all we hear is down at the end, passport. And all we hear is, let me see your passport. And we're getting nervous at this point. We're like, oh my goodness, what in the world? What what do they take everything we have? We just keep hearing that as they go down. Passports, in our minds, this is getting really dangerous. And they come in and the guy looks at him and he goes, passports. And there's two big guys behind him with their guns. Hand him our passports. He looks at them. He goes, (laughs) and walks off. (laughs) Sometimes we make it a little more dangerous than it actually is, right? But I remember being scared to death of that noise, but it wasn't at all what I thought it was. (laughs) But, you know, it just reminds me that there was a time in my life when I was willing to live more dangerously for the gospel of God. Sometimes the blessings, the things that I count as blessings, maybe, maybe they're actually distractions. I got to keep my mortgage. I got to keep working. I got to keep going to school because I got to get a degree so I can get a job. And, and all of a sudden, what was so important to us, something that we were so passionate about just kind of starts moving and moving. I talked about last week how the sharing of what God is doing is the culmination of the experience. And, and I'm sure you all heard the same thing. So in other words, you go and have a great dinner. You hear about this restaurant you go and you spend it with your family and you're like, oh, this is amazing. The, the, the setting is perfect. The service was impeccable. You get that food out there, it's just the right temperature. It was plated perfectly. You take that first bite and you're like, 
oh, that is the best steak I've ever put in my mouth. And it's nice and rare, just the way I like it. I mean, some iodine and Band-Aids, and we can probably bring this thing back. That's, that's the way I like it, right? I mean, it's perfect. And then what is it really that as soon as you have that experience, don't you want to share it? The first time you're with your friends, you're not going to believe what I had the other night. Let me tell you. And we go through the whole thing. We don't just say, oh, it's a great place to eat. No, we walk them through that experience. Why? Because the telling of the experience is almost the culmination of the experience itself. And I even used an example last week of a, of a guy that was, he was sharing about when he was growing up as a teenager. And he finally kissed a girl. And he said, it was the most amazing experience. But I couldn't tell anybody because I already told them I'd kiss a girl a long time ago. And he was like, I had this experience. And yet it was like, it was stuck inside of me. And so people were like, how was it? Same as always, you know. <laughs> but you know, there is something to the fact that sharing about the experience is almost as validating as the experience itself. And I use the illustration that I think a lot of times when we struggle spiritually, it's because we have a lot of pent up joy in us. Now, what I mean by that is, because we don't have the experience and expression, there's a lot of good in us that God has placed in there because of his spirit that is wanting to get out and wanting to be expressed, to be the culmination of this salvation, this, this great faith that has been extended to us by the power of God. Oh. Amen. To live for the kingdom of God, right? I mean, that, that's, is there any greater thing? And here's the thing, I don't wanna paint a picture that you have to go across the world to Romania to be on mission. I mean, we have friends of internationals that are uh, uh, come to our church, Jim and Mary Mather. And, and what they constantly remind us is the nations are at our doorstep. I mean, South Alabama has one of the largest uh, groups of international students, percentages of students that are from foreign countries of any of the colleges in the United States, literally from all these different places that we wish we could send missionaries to. And they're right here. And you know what they want more than anything? To visit an American household. And what Jim tells me is rarely do they get the chance. They'll spend four years here and many of them will never go into an American home just because they don't get invited. To be on mission right here, right now, to live for this great gospel. It's right in front of us. You know, I even think about the friendships that we have and the people that we see. You know, there is so much that I could share with you about my own testimony, about what God has done in my life. Is, uh, is Tim McLean here? He's not. He's on spring break, I think, or something like that. But anyway. He would not show up this one Sunday, right? Well, it's probably good that he's not here. Tim McLean, he usually always sits right there, which is probably why they're gone. That's his reserve table. <laughs> um, I was sharing with my small group this, and I guess I'd never really shared this with the church, but when, when I was young, I struggled with a lot of ideas about God. And uh, I'm, I'm the last of five, if, if y'all don't know this, but I'm 10 years behind the next oldest one, and they're all one year apart. So... But I had a sister who passed away when she was 10 of childhood leukemia. 
And, but I was one when it happened. So I was not impacted by that experience. I, I don't remember her, but I did growing up see how much that impacted my family, brothers and sisters, mom and dad. Anyway, because of seeing that and growing up in a Christian home, nonetheless, I still had this skewed picture of God. I always saw God as like this totalitarian dictator who was just kind of mean-spirited, who had the opportunity to heal, but he just didn't want to give it to people. And I really struggled with that, and that's what kept me from becoming a Christian for a long time. Matter of fact, when I was old enough to go to youth, I went one night, and I just told my mom, I don't do that anymore. I don't want to go. I don't like the people. Whatever excuses you make up to say, oh, they're unfriendly, they're this, they're that. It's really, I just didn't want to go. And uh, she was very smart because she would, I was swimming at that time. I went to swimming lessons. Matter of fact, right over here at the YMCA. And after we would go to swimming lessons, she would always take me to the McDonald's right next to the church because we went to Cottage Hill Baptist Church. And the youth group would always come out because it was Wednesday night. So I was there. There were all the youth, but I was always sitting far away. And I think somewhere in her heart, she was like planning some kind of divine encounter that she thought might happen. And you know what? She must have prayed really hard because it happened. Because one day a guy with a big beard, short guy, came across McDonald's and just sat down at our table and said, what's your name? Jack. Uh, my name is Tim McLean. Uh, and tell me about yourself. And so I told him where I went to school and that kind of thing. Well, that was it. Next Wednesday, go to McDonald's again. Here comes Tim McClain, sits down. What's going on with you? Before long, finds out, you know, play basketball at school. We'll come to one of your games. Sure enough, came to one of the games. Anyway, that began this guy just speaking into my life. And I just, to make a long story short, that has an amazing twists and turns to it, but, um, it was through him and some questions that he asked me that I remember one night going home and thinking, you know what? This God that I've been so opposed to, it's not at all what I've been thinking. And I can see the love and grace of God in this person because he doesn't owe me anything. And yet he stepped out and he's never demanded anything. He didn't make me come to church. He didn't try and bug me or any of those things. He just built a relationship with me. And I remember that night going in there and surrendering my heart to Christ. I was about 17 years old. And reflecting back on it, I wonder, did he have any idea <laughs> that he just led his pastor to the Lord when he was going to be older? You never know. There's people around you. That guy sitting far off at McDonald's person at your school class that doesn't fit in, the person at work who everybody else shuns. Remember, the gospel lifts the lowly and humbles the proud. I'm telling you, there's something to this. And Paul wants to remind us that as we trudge through this life, there's a bigger story that's working itself out. It's been working itself out for a long time, all the way back to Moses, even to Abraham, even beyond. And it's still working itself out today. What a beautiful picture. The gospel of God at work in Israel, at work in the Gentiles, but yet at work in your life and mine. It's a beautiful picture. And I pray that you are ready to accept it, to receive it, to grow in it, and to see God's voice speak through you 
as one of those heralds of the gospel into the dark places that he sends you. Then you're ready to not just accept the gospel, but to embrace it and to embody it and to reflect it to all the people around you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, I, I just want to humble myself before you and realize that I am nothing and you are everything. Lord, I don't understand the ins and outs of life, the difficulties that we all experience. I know one thing, and that is heartache is universal to the human experience. And sometimes I wonder if it's, if it's not that way because it's universal to your experience. We can all relate to heartache and trouble. And yet the scripture that we study from week to week is full of stories about you extending yourself, offering an arm, chasing after people, only wanting to give grace and only to be rejected over and over again. God, I thank you for a great gospel that never gives up on us. And behind that great gospel has to be a great God who has authored it and intended it for his people. God, I pray that you would open our minds and hearts to the truth of what salvation is really all about. It's not to bring heaven here as much as it is to bring heaven to our hearts so that it can overflow from our lives. Lord, it's not to force other people to be like we are. It's for us to learn to engage and be like you are so that other people can see you in us. Lord, there's so many temptations to make the same mistakes that we see here and can be critical of when we read this passage. But just as you are so gracious with Israel, be gracious to your church today. I pray that you would renew a fire in our hearts for the gospel of God. Lord, that we would dedicate our lives to not just being comfortable and not just being safe, but to truly extend ourselves out there and to see you work on our behalf to live a life of true faith. And if there's anyone here today, Lord, who's heard this word proclaimed, and today you have dealt with their heart and you are tugging at them, Lord, I pray that they would have the ability to respond by the power of your spirit to walk out of that darkness and into the light. I pray that today would be their day of salvation. Thank you for opening our eyes. Thank you for saving us for lifting us. I pray, Lord, that we would always remember that it's not about us. It's about you. It's about your name being made great. May we live for the testimony of the gospel every day, perfectly and imperfectly sometimes. But may we be diligent in our pursuits of you. May we find our satisfaction in you. And may you be glorified in us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have any uh, questions about what we've talked about today or questions about what it means to be a follower of Christ, there'll be some people back here in the back as you go out these doors to the left who would love to pray with you. Maybe something is going on in your life. They would love to just see what's going on with you and listen to you and offer a prayer as a supportive brother or sister in Christ. So I just uh, would encourage you, if there's something going on in your heart today, make sure you take advantage of that, right? Let's stand and sing together.